You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And about my guest today, who has joined me at this table so many times in the past, and about his touching new book titled Open Heart, President Barack Obama has just written, with characteristic eloquence, honesty, and wisdom, Ellie Wiesel takes us on another journey to the precipice of death and draws timeless lessons about life. Writer, teacher, much honored and beloved Nobel Peace Prize laureate, witness to and victim of the inhumanity and outrages of the Holocaust, my guest here asks of his recent open heart surgery and its intimations of mortality. Am I ready? Is one ever ready? He answers that some of the ancient Greek philosophers as well as some Hasidic masters claim to have spent their lifetimes preparing for death. But the Jewish tradition counsels another way. We sanctify life not death. You shall choose life, says scripture, and the living with the promise to live a better, more humane life. Now, my guest has always done that, but I know from reading Open Heart, this amazing new little volume, how profoundly different this experience was for Elie Wiesel. And I would ask if he would, if he can, I would ask him to share that experience with us. Is that fair to do, Ellie? Whatever you do is fair. You know that. Well, I'm going to put the question to you. How is it different? Because I have the feeling as I read Open Heart that there is a different Ellie we sell. Because of the event, because of the experience. I came very close to death. Very, very close. But I have been close in death for a long time. So I, I, I'm not afraid. I thought so, at least. But in this case, for the first time, I heard the word open heart surgery. <laughs> There's something about it, open heart surgery, five bypasses and so forth. It was the pain I worried about. And was there that much pain? Of course. How can there not be? Really? But then, of course, there are pills and medications, but I don't like that. I, I like to to know my pain. I like to be aware of my pain rather than ignore it because I, I an injection or because I swallow a certain pill. But I had to take them anyway. Tell me why you say that. You, you like the, to know what it is you're feeling. <sighs> my dear friend, you know, what, what is philosophy? What is literature? What is humanity? If not knowing every minute what we are and what we do with it. Not knowing is not an option. Not knowing what I want to do, not knowing what I have done, that is never an option. The more I know, the more I live. And the more I live, says the ecclesiast, the more I live, the more I know. But the suffering is there, of course. Ellie, have you not ever wanted to... I think of your experiences as a child, the experience with your father. I, I think of all that you have written about your early life, have you never wanted to set, the, I won't say forget, 
to set that aside. No, how can I? Look, I have, you know, I have written and published 60 books. Very few deal with that subject, with that era. But somehow it's there. It cannot not be there. It's not that I want to forget. On the contrary, I want to remember more. And I'm not afraid of pain. I'm not afraid of, of, of sleepless nights. I don't have that fear. The only fear I have is when I write, will I find the right word? <laughs> That's all. You don't have to worry about that. You always have found the right words. I'm not so sure. But, you know, this is, you know, I have doubts. I always have doubts. Uh, Do they grow, Ellie? They grow. Do they grow as you get older? Certainly. Uh, with age, I have more questions than answers and more fear than, than consolation. It, it's so strange for me to hear you say that because to use the word fear in relation to my friend Ellie Wiesel, they don't go together. No, I'm not afraid of, again, I'm not afraid of pain. I'm not afraid of, of displeasing, let's say, certain people. I'm not afraid of these kind of things, but I, or going in the street alone. I'm simply afraid of not finding the right words. I've always had that fear, even when I began writing. I'm afraid that the words that I use are not the proper words. Proper? Yeah. What do you mean Because proper? in the beginning, when I wrote <coughs> my first book, Night, right, I was afraid that since there are no words for it, how can I write? with words. So fear actually was there present in every line, on every page. But I wrote it. So I finished the book, but the fear, the fear remained. It survived it. When was, when, what, what was the year of night? When did it come out in English? In English, I think 1960. In uh, Yiddish, it came out in 1955 uh, in Buenos Aires. In uh, 54, 5, yes. In French, 1956. And in English, here, in 60. And your fears Always. surely should have been put aside by now because when I talk to children, when I talk to high school students and college students who are all familiar now with night, how many, how many years now? 60, 50? And it goes on and on and on. How could you be concerned about the wrong words or not finding the right words? I am. Look, I, I, I wish I could say something else, but I really am. Uh, fear is there. Before, the fear is maybe I will not be find the words. Then, have I found the right words? It doesn't, matter. It doesn't stop me from working. It's simply there, it accompanies my work. It doesn't stop me. I'm not saying to you, because of my fear, I stopped writing. I write. This fear, uh, I can't dismiss it as a uh, cultural uh, matter. I can't dismiss it as it's part of your heritage. It's so personal. Personal, very personal, yes. Sure. When you write, you write in French. French. And marrying your wife, most of, most of my books, since I got married, she does, yes. But I write in French. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I came to France when I, when I came to France in 1945. I didn't know a word of French. But somehow I did not so much adopt the language as the language has adopted me. 
but I needed then a language, a new language. And I, I learned it very, very fast, very quickly, to the point that now I, I can write an article in English, fully Hebrew or Yiddish, but books only in French. Because I, I absorbed literature, culture, philosophy, everything that I, I read is, was, it still is in French. Even American novels, I read them in French translation. In the hospital, yeah. with open heart, were you thinking in French? Or oh. Hebrew, or no, Yiddish? Yiddish. Why do you think Yiddish? Was oh. it your first language? My first language. You know, when you ask, you know, I'm sure you will know, when you, when you are so sick you become a child. It's your childhood that comes into your being and takes over. You are helpless, like a child. You are uh, innocent almost, like a child. Innocent? Yes, you become because so much pain has expiated your sins. Is that true, Ellie? Do you feel that? Oh, well, I, I committed so many sins that I think that I didn't have enough pain yet. Not yet? I, not yet, but I don't know. What did you, what did you, I'm, I'm so interested because you know I'm going to go in for surgery and I, as I read your book, I was thinking, um, what am I going to feel? What has Ellie felt? Okay. So that is in, that is in this little book, you know. I know. But, you know, but there, when I was still in the hospital and everything was okay, my doctors told me, you know, okay, not, you will live. It took three days for them to decide that, okay, everything is okay, you will live. Now we want to tell you, you are going to be very, very tired for years and very depressed. So I don't know how to fight fatigue. I don't know. But I do know how to fight depression. How? I began writing. How? And so worrying about the words? There afterwards, but not while. So you do the same thing, my dear friend, when you are in the hospital, have a pen there and write. Take, take the advice from an older friend of yours. <coughs> not an older friend. Remember that, Ellie, as I read the book? Open heart. Uh, we talk here in the open mind. You experience the open heart surgery. Unique, different from anything you... Yes, because of almost, first of all, the heart. I'm supposed to believe that I am in my heart. My soul is supposed to be in my heart. Uh, when I am alone, I speak to my heart. And then I found out, for instance, that when the surgery takes place, the heart is next to you. <laughs> lying there. Lying there. So I speak to my heart lying there. <laughs> what did, what did you, you express it here, but I want you to... Tell me here and tell those who are viewing, although they should read the book, what was that like? I mean, you must have been semi-conscious of what was going on. Semi. That, first of all, look, what happened really is, is very, very strange, by the way. I have a very, very good doctor. And I go once a year, I go for a checkup. They gave me a checkup and everything was good. Except I suffer from migraine headaches all my life from age seven. I had migraine headaches until the day I entered Auschwitz. They stopped when I entered Auschwitz. They came back when I left Auschwitz. As to this day, I suffer from terrible migraine headaches. 
that I spoke to so many doctors, uh, specialists. There's nothing they can do because my mother had migraines, my father, my grandfather, hereditary. Then, with this, my headaches were there, but not in, in the hospital. Uh, my pain, other pain, was greater than my headaches. Which was true of Auschwitz. Naturally. So there, I went, I saw my doctor. He's a very good man, a nice man, a good friend, became a good friend. And he checked me up. He said, everything is okay. But I had to go for an endoscopy. That day, I went to an endoscopy. And the guy who did it, also a friend, they all become my friends, my doctors, said to me, hey, this is not a stomach. I think it's your heart. I had never had problems with my heart. But I had that day, that morning at 9 o'clock, a meeting with Iranian refugees, dissidents. I think, you know, I take care of this kind of people. And in all of a sudden, the following, my, my other doctor, my generalist, calls me. He didn't want to frighten me. He says, you know, uh, you have to come for another test, that's all. I said, I cannot. He said, you must. <laughs> I said, I cannot. We began quarreling. I said, look, I have here for whom it's a matter of life and death, because they are sentenced to death, and if they go back to Iran. So we made a deal. I'm very good at, since, since childhood, I'm good deal-making. <laughs> at noon I'll be there, three hours. And, and you went home? No, no, I didn't, I didn't have time to go home, but I called for my wife. My wife was with me, Maria. I, I don't know why. I said, you know what, come with me. And the moment we came, they were waiting for me already at the entrance, at the gate, and quickly to surgery. Why? I don't know. Something they discovered in the last test. And immediately they realized that it's the heart. And while the first doctor, who actually had operated on my wife two years earlier, said to me, I hope it's the same thing. And then, it's not saying, I'll put in a stand, which I did for your wife. And all of a sudden, he says, ah, I'm sorry, Ali. It's much more serious. And I think we are going to need open-heart surgery. So that's, all of a sudden, the world changed. And by the time I was ready, already they called, Marian was there, she called my son, Elisha. And when I saw them, I realized how serious it is. And they then brought this, pushed me to the gurney, to the gurney to the door. That was my fear, the real fear. I wasn't sure I would see them again. You are a lousy patient, though. As you talk about your relationship with your doctor, who becomes your friend, and yeah, all sure. you... I'm a you very fight bad patient. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a good friend, but a very pa a bad patient. That's what I gathered from open heart. Uh, why? I don't know. I, I'm, no, look, I'm not that bad. After all, I go to see them. And, and we talk about philosophy usually on my doctors. <laughs> not about me. We talk about philosophy. But look, I, I don't know. I listen. At the same time, I listen to the doctors, and I'm grateful to them. Really, I'm very grateful for what they are doing. Uh, I always feel jealous. Jealous? Yeah, of the, of the doctors. Their knowledge? Their knowledge and the way. Look, 
for me to help someone, it would take months to, if he or she become my students or the reader who reads my books. There, that one injection, it's finished. That's wonderful. So I'm jealous of the good that they can do so fast. With me, it would take, I don't know, years. And they save lives. I have not saved a single life. You don't think that you've saved lives? I don't think so, no. Not directly, maybe my, my teaching, well, my writing have influenced, yes, but it's un among the unknown readers of students. But in their case, they know whom they do the work. And they save life, they save mine. Ellie, when you were recovering, what changes did you experience, if any? Oh yes, first of all, physical. I couldn't move. And, you know, when you're in the hospital, uh, you're a kind, a kind of prisoner. You need a nurse for anything, literally for anything. And then I couldn't take it anymore. I was I'm impatient to leave. But nevertheless, again, you know, they, they, the doctors were there all the time. And they still are. I see them, of course. The strange question that, that I suppose, strange question that uh, occurs to me, we've known each other so long. We come in a sense from the same background and in a very real sense from very different backgrounds. We feel close to each other. What did you feel that was, as you felt that you were coming closer perhaps to lifelessness, you were frightened by hearing the words open heart Yes, no? but, you know, yes, but at the same time, remember, in my past, when I was with, first I thought of my father, my father, and we were together in a place where we lived in death. Not only with the dead, we lived with the dead a lot of time. We would sleep, let's say, somewhere, and we got up in the morning, the person there was already dead, and you realize, without any shock, that you slept, slept with a dead person. At that time, death was the norm, not life. So I was used to this kind of, of, of attitude and reaction. Here, the fear was, first of all, not to see really those that I love. The last time, the word the last time, you know. And, uh, I describe it here that when I saw a lot in, in my mind or in my dreams or in my hallucinations, I saw my father and I thought maybe he came to take me with him. And that was not a fear. It was a kind of reassurance. I won't be alone. But to be alone with the dead is really not an option again. It's not a solution must be alone, if even alone, with the living. You say our tradition yeah, sure. is one of living. Only, always life. Whatever, look, in, 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 in our tradition, for instance, you cannot touch a corpse. 
because the corpse makes you impure. Even Moses, the holiest, the greatest of all our figures in the Bible, it is God who took care of him when he died because human beings would have been impure. Any corpse, we cannot touch a corpse. Death is impure. Only life is pure. Only life is holy. That is not. It's a, our entire tradition is that based on what is good, what is good, literally. You have to choose between good and evil. What is good is life. What is bad is evil. Your experience then was a reaffirming one. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, became, I became more the person I was or am, which is the result of pain. Usually pain can either make you worse or better. More, it, more, more, more superficial or more profound. Did you think back to Auschwitz? Oh, naturally, sure. It came back when I was there, as you say, in my semi-coma or something, of course, I came back when I saw, I remember the days and the nights with my father. I remember so well the program we did together when I had the temerity, uh, certainly not wisdom, but temerity, and to ask you if you would read that passage mm -hmm. when your father died. Sure. And it was such an incredible experience watching you read those great words. Because you look, I write about it in my autobiography, you know, all the rivers run to the sea, which I'm sure I remember you read. At home, I was closer to my mother, a young child, actually, all children are, because my father was always busy. And we became inseparable there. In, literally. Literally. In, 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 and, and he never left me. I must have told you that. When I got the Nobel Prize, after all, the great ceremony, it's a huge ceremony, it's a, one, once in a lifetime. And, uh, you know, there was ceremony, the king and everybody. <coughs> and then came my turn to speak. Good. The chairman of the committee announced with all the praise in the world, and, and now, all of a sudden, because it was such an important moment, I saw my father. And I couldn't speak. Couldn't open my mouth. I think it took me two or three moments, infinitely long moments, to shake up and, and speak. So I see him. You know, life is made of moments, you remember. Not of years, but of moments. And that was such a moment. But in important moments, I see my father. Because of the teachings or because of that experience, I always have the sense of your being so much the experience of the teachings you have absorbed. The teaching, you know, the teaching is one of the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and thy mother. But that became my intimate experience because of what we went through together. Yeah. How many years ago is that now, Ellie? 1944, 45. 
and remembrance has been the the word that you've used so so often in the years the importance of remembrance remembrance are you are you more sanguine today that we will remember those years we have to oh, Ellie that's not the question no, 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 no. that we have to which means it's a kind of almost a commandment we have to remember if not we are lost if we forget that experience for humanity, not only for the Jewish people, for humanity. History will not forgive us. And who knows what could happen in the world. You said that to me here many decades ago. Today, would you say you can be as certain or are as uncertain that we remember as those years ago, what's happened? Has it been a plus or a minus? No, we remember. On one level, never before have there been more books on that subject, more memoirs on the subject, uh-huh. more exhibits on the subject, more programs on the subject, more museums. Take the museum in Washington, right. like Yad Vashem Jerusalem. It's a great module. Twenty million people go there when well, they're in twenty years or so or more in the museum in Washington, which I, I helped build with my friends. People want to know. People want to know. Where did we go wrong? That's the question they all ask. Where did we go wrong? Where did mankind go yes, wrong? Yes, of course. I mean humanity. Where did mankind go wrong? Where did history go wrong? It wasn't simply an aberration of history. It was a human-made place. It didn't come down from heaven ready-made. Auschwitz was made by human beings. The human mind has invented it, has created it. And you're willing to say, because we must remember that we are remembering. Yes. This commandment, in all kinds of ways, we remember. How can I disagree with my friend Ali? We don't. How can I? But, really. but I do. I, I know. I have an argument justifying your pessimism. If we really remembered, the world would be a better place. If we really remembered, there would be no Rwanda, and, and children would not starve in Africa. And human beings would not be persecuted in all kinds of places. And there would be no uh, 40,000 victims already in Syria killed by, by their own leader. And I wonder what it means that just as you say that, I'm told that our time is over. <laughs> Ellie, thank you for joining me today on The Open Mind. It's always good. Thank you. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you will join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, Good night and good luck.